welcome everyone to another episode of Governed by God, an analysis of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. My name is Eric Leupold, and I'm your host, and I really appreciate you tuning in. I hope that you would like the show and share the show with your friends, your family, uh, anything on social media, those hearts, stars, thumbs up, all those things uh, really help uh, help me to get the message out there. So I really appreciate uh, you tonight uh, tuning in. So where have we left off? Well, uh, last time, uh, last, last episode, we looked at uh, the three uses of God's law and basically why why does God's law matter, especially for the Christian, right? Um, as Christians, we believe in all the Bible, not just the New Testament, but also the Old and we believe that the uh, Old Testament law has a purpose, uh, not just a historical artifact or kind of a gee whiz thing. So the question is, uh, what do we do with it? Why does it matter? Should we care? What purpose does it serve? Uh, so I looked at that uh, last episode a couple weeks ago. So please uh, tune into that. Take a look at that episode if you haven't had a chance to do so yet. Now for this episode today... I want to look at how to connect God's law to our lives as Christians. So, I mean, there's a huge gap there. There's a 2,000 years or more gap, and it's on the other side of the world in a completely different culture. So, how do we, 21st century Christians living in, I imagine, you know, most of my listeners, most of you are living in the West, Western culture in the United States, other parts of the West, um, how do we apply that? Well, we have to begin by looking at the historical context of Israel and the ancient Near East. So, with that said, um, the concept of law is that it represented the reign and rule of a deity in that land. So, I jump out and just say that right off the bat because a lot of times we don't think about it that way. We just think of law as being the way that those cultures ordered or organized themselves during that time. But uh, law wasn't divided from worship in the in in that part of the world, and, and and I'll argue later on that it's still not divorced from worship. Um, religion and law go hand in hand. What what a culture believes about um, its gods. What, what its gods are will dictate what its laws are. So in the ancient Near East, you know, you had certain territories that belonged to certain gods. So in Egypt, you had um, the various gods of Egypt, and Pharaoh was a representative of God on earth, and their laws uh, were representative of the gods of Egypt. And so those those gods reigned and ruled in that land. Egypt belonged to those gods. Um, similarly, uh, the Canaanites and other peoples that uh, Israel ended up displacing, they worship various gods. You know, whether it's the Amorites worshiping Moloch, or Baal, or Asherahs, and each of those gods had their own territories. Which, uh, just to give an example. In the Old Testament, you'll often see the phrase uh, Baal Peor, uh, the Baal of Peor. Okay, so the so the land Peor, uh, there's a there's a Baal that's associated with that 
territory. So there were multiple Baals in a way, but there was also interconnectedness between them. But essentially, uh, various gods owned or laid claim to various territories. Um, the law represented the reign and rule of the deity of the god in that land. Now, God's law given to Israel was no exce- no exception to that. Uh, Israel was the people, and they were going to be given a land, and God was going to be their God, and, and they were going to be his people in that land. All right, so the first one of the first times we see that is in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. And today we're going to go through a lot of scripture. Uh, I'm going to try to be uh, thorough today. Uh, we'll see how far we get. I might not be able to cover all the material, but that's okay. We'll just pick it up next time. But in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, here's what it says. Um, and this is exactly where Baal Peor is, is mentioned. So, uh, verse 3, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? All right, we'll stop there. But a couple things to note. Um, again, the, the Baal of Peor, Moses uh, specifically mentions that. Uh, so, again, you have the idea of, of a god in the land or in that particular territory. Uh, but God also basically tells Israel that their laws are going to be an example for the nations. It's not just that this is the way Israel is supposed to live, and that's, that's it. That's the end of the story. Everyone else just, everyone does their own thing. You know, every, the, Egypt has their gods and their laws. Uh, the Canaanites have their gods and their laws. The Assyrians have their gods and their laws. And Israel, well, you get your gods and your laws in your land. And that's, you know, that's the end of the story. But God says, no, uh, the nations should be looking at Israel. They should see these laws, these statutes and rules, and they should be amazed at them. They should see them as righteous and as a reflection of the righteous God that they worship. So there is an evangelistic uh, sense to this here. So that's kind of part one there. So the next part of the purpose of the law for Israel is that it was covenantal. Okay, so the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone that Moses wrote or that God had given to Moses, uh, when he came down from Mount Sinai, uh, they were the covenant document for Israel. And it's it's very possible that two copies of the law were kept in the ark. At the very least, though, we know that um, 
at least one copy was kept in the ark. So there's a, there's a sense here in which Moses comes down from the mountain with the two tablets and declaring this law to Israel. And then Israel responds to it, uh, hopefully positively. There's a couple bumps in the road, but eventually um, they do embrace it. And then these documents are sealed in the Ark of the Covenant um, to remain there until the end of time or until something else changes, which happens much, much later. But they are to be a reminder uh, of the relationship between God and Israel. And in a way, it's their constitution. It's their covenant documents. Um, in Exodus 24-7, here is what uh, Moses does in front of the people of Israel. It says this, Then he, this Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then in verse 8, it says, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So um, there's a constitutional covenantal relationship here, an official um, acceptance. Uh, God has, has rescued Israel. He's, he's brought them out of Egypt. He's giving them about to give them the, new, the, the land that he promised them, and he wants to establish a permanent relationship with them where they are his people, and he is their God, and they are to obey him. And so the, the law, as espoused in the Ten Commandments, is to be the Bill of Rights, if you will, in the Constitution for the nation. So they were to be set apart from the nations around them, they are to be God's people, and he is their God. And even though they're to be separate from the nations around them, and God says this multiple times throughout Scripture, particularly in the book of Leviticus, where he uh, commands them, uh, let's say, for example, Leviticus 20, 24, he says, But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. So uh, Israel is separated out from the peoples. There are special people for him. But there is an evangelistic sense to what's being done here. There to be the light, there to be an example, and there to proclaim the holiness, righteousness, and beauty of basically God's laws, the way that God wants Israel to live, should be something that um, draws in uh, the nations around them. So uh, there's, a re- this is, there's some multiple reasons for these laws, and uh, the laws are meant to, kep- to keep Israel from joining the nations in, in their despicable practices. Another part of this covenantal concept is that the king, now at the time that Israel received these documents under Moses, there was no king. So it's kind of interesting how God establishes some guidance for when they get a king. Now later on, they're going to ask for a king wickedly. They're going to want a king like the nations around them. 
but God's going to give them some preliminary guidance on how to do this, if they, if to how to get a king. So, in uh, Deuteronomy 17, uh, God explains that they're not supposed to pick a foreigner over them. The king is not supposed to have too many horses, uh, basically too large of an army. He's not to have too many wives, too much gold, too much silver, too much power, things like that, etc., etc. So, but then, how is he supposed to function as a king? And this is uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So what we see with this is, Essentially, the king is supposed to take a copy of the Constitution, the covenant documents, the law, and he's supposed to make a copy for himself by hand, and it's supposed to be graded by the priests. Okay, so um, this is uh, meant to remind the king that he is not an absolute ruler, not a dictator. He is underneath the authority of the covenant, the Constitution. So, he's not a law to himself. No one is above the law, not even the king. And the king has to know the law in order to enforce it. So, the law of Israel, the constitution, was binding upon the king and the people. And what's also neat about this is that the people and the king essentially stand or fall together. This is something that the prophet Samuel uh, mentions to Israel before he essentially retires. And he says this in 1 Samuel chapter 12. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Okay, so that's, it's interesting that God is basically holding them both accountable. You know, that the people have to obey the Lord and the king, the king have to, has to obey the Lord as well. And if either one messes up, things will go badly for both parties. They stand or fall together. Now, I say all this to show that the law highlights what God cares about, okay? Uh, God cares about a people. He wants the people to be his people, and he wants the king to be also his king. The, the king is not to cause the people to go astray, and the people are not to follow a wicked king. They're to follow the Lord. So, both the king and the people are to belong to God and to submit to the Constitution. And God rescued his people out of slavery and Egypt, and he demands and requires love and loyalty. 
And God's holiness requires that the people must be holy to draw close to him. All right. And so that's the loving him portion. They're, they're to love him with all the, their mind, soul, body, and strength. Okay, which is a quotation from Deuteronomy. The greatest commandment is that Jesus quoted is from Deuteronomy. And then secondly, they're to love their neighbor. They're to exercise proper behavior towards each other and towards the nations around them. And God, God rescued his people as a group, not just individuals. Um, and they're to treat others as also image bearers of God. And they're to set an example for the nations around them with the law. And that's the loving neighbor portion, which again is, is quoted by Jesus as a, basically the second greatest commandment, but it's from Leviticus. So both times that Jesus quotes the greatest and second greatest commandment, he's quoting straight out of the covenant documents, the constitution of Israel. So now when we fast forward to the time of Jesus, we, we see that uh, Jesus ends up paying and fulfilling what the law demands. Um, he says this explicitly in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we need to dive into that a little bit deeper. What does that mean? What, is, what does it mean to fulfill? Well, at the very least, it can't mean to abolish, <laughs> to completely eradicate or get rid of, because he just said he didn't come to abolish the law. So whatever we end up coming down to what fulfill means, it does not mean make, like annihilate or abolish or make disappear. And, and he goes on to say in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, that's important to keep in mind there. I mean, heaven and earth pass away, that's certainly indicative of the end of times. Okay, then, you know, you see it, we get an idea of new heavens and new earth, final judgment. Okay, so until then... Nothing will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, what what is all is accomplished? Again, not just death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but also the gathering of his people from the four corners of the earth and the final judgment until all is accomplished. And and on for that reason, we go to verse 19. This this is why it matters, because he says, therefore. So in verse 19, Jesus is saying, because of what I just said. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's an important thing to keep in mind here, is that while the Pharisees were quite righteous to the in the minds of the people, and one might think, well, how is it possible that we can ever get the righteousness of the Pharisees? And the fact is, on our own merit, we can't. Only by the blood of Christ. Only by Christ's atoning sacrifice and, and him accrediting 
to us his righteousness, can we exceed that? So um, this section explains to us what fulfill means. Fulfill means not abolishing. Fulfill means that the law still remains. It's still valid. It's still here. It still applies. Um, But it also means that it's fulfilled by Christ. And that means that the law looks a little different. How that law is lived out by those who are in Christ is going to be different. Apart from Christ, outside of Christ, before Christ, the law required people to live a certain way. But now that Christ has come and has fulfilled all the requirements of the law, now what does that look like for his followers, for Christians? Um, But it doesn't look like not teaching about the law. It doesn't look like uh, people trying to teach others to not do the law or to not live in accordance with the law. Jesus condemns that practice. He says, whoever relaxes the law and teaches others to relax the law will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so that's not that's not good. Definitely don't want to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So we have that passage there. That That's very important to keep in mind what fulfill means. Now there's other passages that can give us a little bit of a glimpse as to how that applies. And the book of Hebrews is particularly helpful in this. And, I mean, the author of Hebrews knows the Old Testament and the Old Covenant really well, uh, and the law as well. So, so again, I encourage you, read the book of Hebrews carefully if you want to have, um, to gain a solid understanding of the relationship between the, the New Covenant and the Old. So, but I'm just going to look at a couple passages. Um, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, we have the author comparing Jesus to Melchizedek, the ancient priest uh, that uh, Gen- in Genesis that Abraham met. And here's what he says. Here's what the author of Hebrews says, verse 12, chapter 7. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Okay, so that's that's important because he he's arguing in the book of Hebrews that there has been a change in the priesthood. Okay, so the law has been changed in some way because we have a new priest. Um, and this, to kind of jump back to... Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where we just read about um, Jesus saying he fulfills the law. He then goes on to teach about anger, adultery, the taking of oaths, vengeance, and loving neighbor. And uh, we don't have to go through all of them, but here's just an example. He says in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. All right, so he goes on to talk about how if you're angry with your brother, uh, leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled, and then come back. So, um, 
What is he doing there? Well, he's getting to the heart of the matter, but he's not weakening the law. Really, he, he's not relaxing it in any way. He's actually strengthening it. Because previously you could say, well, I didn't murder the guy, so I am not guilty of breaking the commandment of thou shalt not murder. And Jesus is saying, you have it all wrong. You have it all wrong. The issue, it goes way deeper than that. And it's way more than that. If you're full of hatred and anger towards your brother, you've already broken. You've already broken the commandment. Before you even lifted a finger to hurt him, before you picked up the knife to kill him, uh, you are already guilty. So he does not relax at all the commandment. He, He strengthens it and gets to the heart of the matter. And that theme is what Jesus does every time he brings up the law. He does that in the very next passage, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, about lust. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so again, adultery is not just the physical act in the eyes of God. It is much deeper than that. It starts with just the look of the eyes, the lustful look of the eyes. So, in all of this, Jesus is is explaining and applying and expanding God's law. And so, we need to keep that in mind when we are considering how the law applies to us today. Now, so he gets to the heart of it. He does not relax the law. And he, um, in fact condemns those who would try to do so. Uh, But now, how does he respond to the Pharisees? Because certainly, the issue with the Pharisees is that they add a lot of extra rules that are not in God's law. And, And they do more than that, by the way. They don't just add rules. They, they play games with the law. So, for example, they would have no problem engaging in lustful acts. They just didn't have to commit adultery. So as long as they did everything up to the physical act of adultery, they were good to go. They were okay. Um, It was all just very... It's just all about the loopholes. It's all about finding a way around the law. Just the letter of the law, it's all you have to follow and you're good to go. So, hey, you know, if you want to be angry, and you want to hate people, and maybe you want to beat them up, uh, just don't uh, kill them, and you didn't break the law. So, there you go. But but at the same time, they'll add traditions, like the washing of couches, hands, every kind of washing uh, before every meal. Um, not so much to eliminate dirt from their hands, but it really had to do with just in case somebody or something touched a Gentile, touched unclean food, or entered a Gentile's house, um, you would just wash to make sure you're good to go. Um, But anyways, here's what Jesus has to say in uh, Matthew 23, verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, so Jesus is highlighting that they are reversing, their priorities are wrong. They're straining gnats, so they're just, they make a big deal out of tithing spices. I mean, really? The smallest of spices, you're going you're gonna to spend your day, hours, tithing that? Like, counting out the grains of spices? But you're going to neglect the more important matters. Okay, so, but Jesus does say, you should have done the tithing. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You should do them both. Do them both. Definitely don't neglect the weightier matters of the law. Those matter most. But, but, I mean, do them both, okay? Uh, feel free. It's fine. You know, tithe, tithe the spices, but don't forget everything else. So, that's how he responds to pharisaicalism. And there's a couple examples of, of how this happens. Um, the book of Matthew has several of them, but I'll just, I'll give you one. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus talks about that issue of hand washing. Uh, so, beginning of Mark 7, here's what, here's what happens. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And later on he goes on and says, uh, Hear me, all of you, to understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. And he continues, he says, uh, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? This is verse 19 now. Since it enters in, not his heart but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. So the traditions here are not from God's law. There's nothing in God's law that says, if you come from the marketplace, you have to wash. Wash your cups, your pots, your couches. But the idea was that in the marketplace, where there would have been Gentiles and unclean food there, like, like pigs, like pork, um, if you were in the marketplace, well, just in case you accidentally touched something that was unclean or you bumped elbows with a Gentile who was unclean, well then, since you came from that place and you can't know for sure, the, you're, you know, it's just, you know, it's conservative. It's, uh, the best thing to do is just wash anyways. And just wash everything. So if you do that, you're covered and you're good to go, you know, just to be, just to be on the safe side of things. So, 
that was what the Pharisees were doing, and it became a, a pure tradition of men. And so that is uh, what Jesus is kind of kind of getting at there. Now, I bring that up to kind of highlight, you know, what, what is Jesus focusing on when it comes to the law? He's not diminishing it. He's not eradicating it. He's actually correcting, he's correcting um, the errors of the Pharisees and what they did to the law. So, uh, and we need to understand that there are continuations and some changes too. So, because Jesus came, we can say that in some sense, how the law applies has changed. The law hasn't gone away, it's just been fulfilled. And uh, just like with a new priest comes a change in the law, well, Jesus as God, as the God-man, he can also give new laws. One example of this is the new commandment in John chapter 13, uh, verse 31. Here's what he says. He says, uh, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And here's the key, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, that's a new commandment. Jesus explicitly says it's a new commandment. Well, why? Well, it kind of falls under the commandment, love your neighbor, but there's something different here. And the reason is because the church is new. Uh, The disciples of Christ, the Christians, are new. Okay, they're, uh, he, he's creating a new entity, the church, and he's giving the church a new commandment to love one another. So yes, the church is to love their neighbors, and the neighbor, um, by definition, includes anyone you interact with. It's, it also includes non-believers, but the new commandment is love one another, the brothers and the sisters in the Lord. So... Jesus can do that because he's inaugurating a new covenant, so a new constitution, um, as God, as the God-man, and he is a new priest. So the old priesthood has gone away, and there is a change in the law. Um, But the old law isn't just discarded, okay? It's just fulfilled. And that is where we need to spend some time. Um, And I... I'm going to start looking at it now, but I know we're going to not be able to finish up today. And so we'll look into more specific examples and how the New Testament does this, how the New Testament takes the Old Testament law and applies it. But how we apply God's law is first, you want to organize it and try to understand it uh, uh, in the way that it's presented. Um, and it, And this is kind of self-explanatory just through scripture, but the first, well, the two greatest commandments we have are, of course, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus even says in Matthew 22, verse 40, that all the law and the prophets hang on these commandments, on these two commandments. And so just in your mind, it's at the very tippy top, you have love God and love your neighbor. Those are the two greatest commandments. Everything else, 
hangs or or it falls under that. And then you have the Ten Commandments. Okay, the categories, the very broad categories uh, that God had established for Israel. The first four commandments have to do with loving God. And the last six have to do with loving neighbor. So, loving God, uh, no other gods before me. Okay, no, no idols or graven images. Uh, no taking the Lord's name in vain. And no, oh, sorry, honoring the Sabbath. No violation of the Sabbath. So, those four are typically seen as having to do with, with the relationship between God and man. And then when you go to the last six, you have honor your father and mother. Okay, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. And lie, you know, don't bear false witness, falling under the, the lying aspect of it. And those are the last six that have to do with how we interact with each other as humans. So um, that's kind of how it's, it's broken down. And many of them overlap, by the way, which is why Jesus could say when the question to him was, what was the greatest commandment? He says, it is love God, love neighbor. They're very much tied together. In fact, he says uh, of the loving neighbor portion, it's like it. It's like loving God in a way. So, I mean, you cannot truly love your neighbor without first loving God. If you don't love God, you will not be in a position to love your neighbor. And then at the same time, you cannot say that you love God if you don't actually love your neighbor. If you hate your neighbor, but say you love God, you're a hypocrite. And you really don't love God like you say you do. So that's kind of the way that the scripture shows us how these relate to each other. Now, as far as the rest of the laws, they are commentary and they are case studies. Okay, so uh, an example would be the laws concerning um, the ox that gores your neighbor in the Old Testament. If the ox uh, gores your neighbor and you knew about that ox had a history of goring and you did nothing to prevent that, to, to fence in the ox or to restrain it, you're liable for damages. Uh, you're responsible for the death of your neighbor. Now, only the ox is mentioned in the Old Testament. Does that mean that if there's some other animal that doesn't apply? Well, well no. It applies for all animals that you would have, not just oxen. Okay. Um, so those are case studies. And you would take the laws of Israel, those specific examples, and you would apply them where it makes sense to apply them. And we'll look at how that's done uh, probably in the next episode, uh, next podcast episode. But to continue, those laws serve as examples of what it means to love God and love your neighbor. Now, historically, and this is where we get into um, how to look at God's law in light of Christ. So, Historically, what the church has typically done, what Christians have done, Christians all throughout the ages, is they've divided God's law into three categories. The civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. So the civil law refers to how Israelites were to relate to each other as a nation state. How each citizen of Israel was to treat other citizens of Israel 
foreigners, sojourners, natives, aliens, whatever the case may be. Uh, that's the civil law. And I gave the example of the ox goring your neighbor as, as one of them. Then you have the ceremonial law related to how Israel is to worship God. And that would include things such as um, clean and unclean foods, uh, Sabbath rules, and festivals and feasts. All, all of those things would, would apply to the ceremonial aspect. And then you have the moral law, which are those universal moral principles that are applicable to all humans at all places and at all times. For example, don't murder. Okay, so that's an important one, and that would be a universal law that applies to every culture. It doesn't matter. It's not just for Israel. Um, this has been a very useful method uh, throughout, throughout Christian church history because it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a neat and, and tidy way to organize God's law. It's kind of like the quick answer key, you know, just look for the laws. Okay, is it civil? Okay, maybe it just applies to Israel. Um, although uh, Christians would say that the principles behind those laws are still useful and applicable today. But the ceremonial laws, well, Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice, so we don't need to sacrifice animals anymore because he did that. So those laws, therefore, are fulfilled and in, in that sense, no longer need to be adhered to by uh, God's people. And then the moral law. Yeah, of, co of course, don't, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and don't murder. Um, always, always uh, applicable. Uh, I'm, in my next episode, I'm going to offer some criticism of that typical way of doing things. I think that it is an oversimplification of how it's to be done. I think it's useful, um, but it's kind of speeding in a way. Uh, and I, as Christians, we really need to do a good job of showing our work, of how, we, of how we got to the point of putting a particular law in one of those categories. Um, and, and I think an example of how it gets a little blurry are things like the Sabbath laws. Because honoring the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. So, I mean, are the Ten Commandments universal moral laws? Well, the Sabbath law was has to do with one's relationship to God and how one worships God. But at the same time, the Sabbath law has a civil aspect to it, too. Some of the Sabbath laws regarding feast festivals and the tithe, supporting Israel and supporting the priesthood, the Levitical priests and the, and the poor. And at the same time, um, the Sabbath laws, can they, can they be said to be universal? Because no other nation in the Old Testament is judged for violating the Sabbath laws. Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and the wicked nations that were in Canaan before Israel, none of them are condemned for violating the Sabbath. So is it moral? Is it ceremonial? Is it civil? Is it all the above? And then, of course, for Israel, breaking one of these laws was a moral failure. To break the civil law 
was also to break a moral law. Um, you just Israel violated that. And in fact, Israel gets judged for many things, not just the moral law, but also not tithing as they were supposed to and for breaking the Sabbath. Um, God has a lot of strong words to say to them about that. So I want to really dive into that more later. We'll do that in the next episode. I do still, I kind of still like the three breakdown of the of the law, three categories, but I'll show you why, why I have some criticisms of it, why it's still useful, but I would be careful in how it's used. You got to still show your work. So anyways, uh, so I hope that this has been useful to you. Um, I know we went through a lot of scripture, but I really want to encourage you to to think seriously about God's law, why it matters, and, and why it's important. So thank you again for tuning in. Um, I pray uh, that, you'll, that you'll join me next time as we look at how specifically to uh, apply God's law and some of the examples the New Testament gives. And so until then, please, again, like the show, share the show. Uh, please support me in that regard. And until next time, take care of me.